Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The United States and North Korea both share a desire to achieve a breakthrough in their relationship, but to very different ends. At one time, there was hope that strongman personalities of Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un could push their way through diplomatic roadblocks, but with a year since their last significant meeting, interaction has stalled. Here to discuss this relationship is Si Young Kim, a research associate and project manager at the East Asia Institute in Seoul, South Korea. Sarah is a contributing author to the new Latrobe Asia Brief, examining the interactions between the Trump presidency and Asia. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. Thank you for having me, Matt. <laughs> it's an honor to be here. So when Trump became president of the United States, the relationship with North Korea developed quite quickly. Both sides have their own objectives that they want to achieve, uh, but there seems to be little desire to have concessions for each other. And I, I think that that's kind of the main problem. You're getting two people with competing views. So can you talk me through how this relationship has developed and, and your perspective on it? So I feel like the relationship between North Korea and the U.S., I mean, in the beginning, during 2017, we didn't really see that it was going to achieve sort of a breakthrough with the whole summits happening. But mm. all of a sudden, it really quickly transitioned into this love letter relationship between <laughs> Kim Jong-un and Trump and them having these series of summits together. Within, even within the Trump administration, there was a lack of coherence. There were key positions that had been left open. So when it came to actually making the deals at the table, nothing substantial could be made. And mm. without a definition on denuclearization that they could share on, and without having, most importantly, South Korea at the table with them, I feel like it was very difficult for this all of a sudden spark in the love letter relationship to actually transition into anything substantial and meaningful, especially in denuclearization. Denuclearization was more of a United States desired outcome. What did Kim Jong-un want out of this? One thing that I, I guess he did want was acknowledgement, right. which the entire summit process gave him by default. But that wasn't the only thing, was it? No, it was definitely not the only thing. I would say the number one thing would be relieving sanctions. Mm. And if I tie that in a little bit with the current situation now, even with the coronavirus, North Korea is maintaining that they have zero confirmed cases. Mm. Um, and everyone's suspecting that they're having some major economic problems at home but we aren't really sure what's going on. And North Korea has been demanding for sanctions relief for a very long time. And without South Korea at the table with them, I feel like it's been very difficult for them to achieve anything. So do you think that the, the rush to establish this relationship early in the Trump presidency hurt the chances of anything being achieved then? I would think so. I mean... It was a breakthrough in that the two leaders met and were able to have some individual one-on-one -on -one summit level talks. Mm. But for anything to be actually achieved, 
I mean, if you look back at the history after the Korean War ended in 1953, things require working level talks. And we didn't really see that happening with Trump and Kim, let alone more conflicts building up in U.S.-South Korean relations. Well, part of the problem was the definition of denuclearization and what that would even look like, which wasn't established before any of the summits went ahead. So if you could tell me what, what is the difference between the two countries and what do they see denuclearization as being? So the two countries had a very different definition on denuclearization. The important fact is that North Korea sees denuclearization as this retreat in the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So... Mm. It would mean that the U.S. forces leaving the Korean Peninsula and such. But what we actually want to get at is for them to actually give up tangible weapons. And that's what the U.S. has been spreading for. And especially under Trump, they've been, I mean, they call it CVID, right? Complete verifiable denuclearization. And we didn't really see any of that. They said they would give up, you know, Yongbyon and everything. Mm. But we still see them doing missile tests and nuclear tests and whatnot. So unless we start off the negotiations with an agreed definition on denuclearization, we're going to have different goals in having these conversations at all. So, But the lack of a definition was always the problem between these two countries. Nobody could right. agree on what this would look like. So. Isn't the fact that Trump just steamrolled that entire process and went ahead with the meeting anyway? I'm almost trying to give him credit here, but isn't isn't it progress that they met and shook hands and had a photo opportunity and seemed to get on well and walked through the garden? Isn't that somehow better than just not being able to agree with each other at all? I'm careful about that question, but I think it's also because there's a reason why people are saying that we should have the five-party talks back on and because this issue doesn't just relate to the U.S. and North Korea and what they have done by having these series of summits and eventually sort of sidelining South Korea, there hasn't been agreements between them bilaterally, but also there haven't been agreements made regionally as well. So I feel like that's a big part of the reason why the discussions couldn't move forward. Well, if we can turn to the relationship now between the United States and South Korea, South Korea was quite integral to arranging the talks with North Korea initially. Right. And uh, Moon seemed quite integral as well to establishing the relationship between Trump and Kim. Now it almost seems like the relationship has soured a bit with South Korea and the United States and that there has been a step back. Trump seems quite eager to roll back military presence in South Korea and roll back that side of the relationship. Can you talk me through that? What's that at now? I feel like that's a big problem because Trump sees our alliance on a cost basis rather mm. than as a value-based agreement that's been there for decades. Trump refused South Korea's offer on the cost-sharing deal. And so we're back to step one, where in terms of cost-sharing, we aren't really sure where it's going to go. What does cost-sharing look like to Trump? For Trump, it's, I feel like, more about money mm. than regional security and more national interest-based. 
So he might think, oh, what's the point of having all of these American troops in South Korea now when I have this relationship with North Korea and Mm. this is costing us. And especially with the coronavirus, there have been furloughs going on at USFK. So that might be more appealing to him. But if we move out the troops, then we're doing exactly what North Korea wants us to do in terms of their own view of denuclearization. And if we lose that card in carrying out further negotiations with them, then it would be even more difficult for us to get them to denuclearize and give up their weapons. So there hasn't been a lot of movement as far as you know further summits for about a year between Trump and Kim. So is staying quiet almost in Kim's best interests just to let Trump worry about what's going on in South Korea or if he's going to worry about anything at all and worry about that relationship. Right. And meanwhile, Kim's still doing nuclear testing by the sounds of it. Right. The situation's even hazier now because we are hearing that Kim's sick and ill and mm. perhaps his life is at stake, but we don't really have factual evidence to support that yet. I feel like the coronavirus is a very interesting variable that adds to this dynamic because it's damaged Trump's reputation a bit, I think, in terms of how he's carried out handling the virus in the U.S. And with the U.S. presidential elections coming up in November, who knows what's going to happen and perhaps Trump will get reelected, perhaps Biden will get elected. I can't really say, but... I feel like Kim Jong-un might also look towards that and start calculating how to go about with his relationship with the states with the imminent election. So the East Asia Institute did a survey amongst South Koreans about their perception of the United States. This survey was a part of a larger project on um, the Moon administration's midterm assessment. Mm. Um, So it's from a couple months back from October but we were evaluating the public's perception on what to do with South Korea's U.S. policy. Mm. And what we found was that 88% of the Korean public perceive U.S. cost-sharing demands as excessive. In addition to that, twice as many respondents, so around 61.1%, stood against the termination of joint military exercises than those who were in support. So, you know, having these statistics in mind and with the cost sharing agreement not bearing any fruit anytime soon, it's concerning about how much anti-U.S. sentiment that this could bring up within Korea, especially with Trump. Another fact to think about is the recent National Assembly elections, the results of the April election in Korea and Moon and the ruling party with the landslide victory and Moon being very pro-engagement with North Korea, the prospects for having U.S. troops in Korean Peninsula or maintaining them on the Korean Peninsula and everything is slowly falling, I think. Although I should be very careful in saying that. But yeah, things are not looking too great, I think. (laughs) For the U.S. relationship. Right, right. And given public sentiment to the United States, Moon has every incentive to be a bit more nationalistic with his 
push and and say no cost sharing and to kind of push back against those kind of things by the sounds of it. Yeah, maybe not as much, but I mean, Moon's definitely different from Trump, but with Moon's values and his tendency for carrying out North Korea policy, yeah, the prospects are not as bright. It's more dim than bright, I would say. Mm-hmm. So has the progress or lack of between US and North Korea changed the dynamic substantially between South Korea and North Korea? Is there better relationship or do you think it's also not going great? Well, I feel like it's also not going as great. We're not mm. seeing any um, discussions going on between the two countries. And since U.S. and South Korean relations have deteriorated a bit or we've been having these conflicts, I feel like North Korea has been raising its voice against South Korea more. Mm. And it's, for example, demanded that it's going to demolish all the South Korean parts of the Kaesong industrial complex and such, which are very key economic joint projects and are milestones in our inter-Korean relations. Definitely not getting better. There were changes in the tourism industry as well. Yes, yeah, exactly. So the Kumgong industry, uh, the tourism industry, I think North Korea is looking more towards developing its own individual tourism industries without reaching out to the southern counterpart. Because we had initially hoped that these joint economic projects would revive, including the joint railways and everything, when Mm -hmm. North Korea began its engagement with the U.S. again. And for a couple months, it went on. For example, with the railway project, it went on for a couple months. But nothing has actually happened. And when you look back at history... And during, you know, the progressive eras in South Korea's politics as well, during Romuyeon and everything, they've had similar projects and similar sparks in inter-Korean relations, but everything's died down in a couple of years. Mm. So we see that kind of going about again, I think. So with the U.S. election impending, and when I say impending, we're about... I want to say six months away from it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Is everything kind of maybe not intentionally, but is it, has everything paused between the three countries to some extent in a waiting game to see if Trump's still going to be the US president that they're dealing with? Yeah, well, I mean, on a personal basis, I've been very careful because I remember in last presidential election, <laughs> um, you know, what happened happened. So we can't really say... Uh, what will happen. But in terms of the Korean public, I see a lot of pro-moon public being actually more cautious about Biden than Trump, which is interesting. I'll Um, tell why. I think it's partially because Obama's past Asia policy and how the U.S. alliance does not only deal with Korea, but also Japan and Korea uh, with its, you know, sensitive relations with Japan. Of course, um, yes. Yeah. yeah, it might be more cautious about Biden than Trump. Mm. But this is only a portion of the Korean public. Other people are more looking forward to having a new U.S. president and a different policy. Can you anticipate what outcome Kim Jong-un might prefer then? Because Trump is the first U.S. president to actually 
acknowledge him with a meeting and a handshake a number of times, uh, which is something that he always wanted, I guess, from a US president, is to, uh, to be acknowledged in that way and have that legitimacy. But do you think that he'd have more or less progress if with, an, with a Biden administration? I think if I put myself in the perspective of Kim Jong-un, I would at this moment prefer Trump because, I mean, there's still room open for negotiations and the U.S. has acknowledged that under the Trump administration, Mm. although with the recent other letter incident, I don't know what's going to happen anymore. But yeah, I feel like with Kim, at least Trump is more open to meeting him and him directly without going through more working level talks. I feel like in, in his shoes, he would probably prefer Trump at the moment. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. Sarah works for the East Asia Institute, and you can follow them on Twitter. They are EAI underscore 2002. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.